turn to the book of Nehemiah. For a long, long time, all I ever knew about Nehemiah was that he was supposed to be the shortest man in the Bible by a very wretched pun on his name, Nehemiah. But uh, <laughs> I'm glad to have discovered a great deal more about this man in the intervening years, and I trust you have too. This is one of the great characters of the Old Testament, perhaps not as well known as some others, but a tremendous man. And if you've read the book this afternoon, as you were supposed to have done, uh, you will have agreed with me, I'm sure. By the way, how many did read Nehemiah today? Would you raise your hand? All right, you, you'll have a clear conscience when you meet him in glory, but I can't say much for the rest of you. Now, remember, uh, we, as we looked together at the book of uh, Ezra last week, we saw that these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, are really one book in the Hebrew Bible. They're part of the same story. In fact, the books, the three books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther come out of the same general period of Israel's history. And as I commented last week, they appear in a reverse order to the chronological order in which they took place. In other words, Esther actually happened first, the account of the book of Esther, when God began to move in the midst of the captivity of Israel in Babylon to return this nation to the land. And shortly past the halfway mark of the 70 years that, it, that Jeremiah had predicted the captivity would last, God raised Esther, a young Jewish maiden, as we'll see in our study together in that book, to the throne of Persia as the queen of Persia. And it was her husband, Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, who is the Artaxerxes of the opening chapter of Nehemiah, and the one who gave the command for, for uh, uh, Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to build up the walls of the city. And that perhaps accounts for a very interesting little parenthesis that appears in this book in chapter one, uh, 2, verse 6, when Nehemiah went to the king, and he says, and the king said to me, parenthesis, the queen sitting beside him. And that queen, I believe, was Queen Esther, uh, the Jewish maiden who had been raised to this position of prominence by the grace of God. Now, uh, the title Artaxerxes, as the title Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, are not the names of these kings. That's what's so confusing about it. They were, they're really titles. Uh, Artaxerxes means the great king. And Ahasuerus means the venerable father. So these were not these kings' names, and that's why it's sometimes confusing. Because the Artaxerxes in the book of Nehemiah is not the same Artaxerxes as in the book of Ezra. Now, do I have a, you thoroughly confused? Good. Now we'll go on. By the way, if I may just add to the confusion a bit. This uh, Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus of Esther is also the Darius the Mede of the book of Daniel. Now, you work on that for a while. <laughs> but at any rate, in the history of these people, uh, 
Esther first was by God's grace ascended to the throne of Persia and so moved on the heart of her husband, the king of Persia, that it was he then who allowed Nehemiah, his cupbearer, to return to uh, uh, Jerusalem and to begin the work of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And some 25 years later, Zerubbabel returned with the about 50,000 of the captives of Babylon as recorded in the book of Ezra. But now when you come to the order in Scripture, you find that God has reversed this. Instead of Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, it's turned around. And in our order, we have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And the reason for that is that Scripture is simply never concerned with chronology first. It's concerned with the meaning of a book, the teaching of it. And in the teaching of this book, we, uh, these three books, we have the story of the way back to God, out of captivity. That's the picture of the book. And so the books are reversed. <clears throat> Ezra talks about the building of the temple. That's always the first thing in the way back to God. The restoration of the, of the house of God, the habitation of God in the human spirit. That's always first. And then comes the building of the walls, as we'll see in the book of Nehemiah. That's next. The need for security and strength. And finally, Esther comes as a revelation of the purpose of all of this in the life of any individual. Now, that gives you a survey of these three books. Now, let's quickly take the book of Nehemiah itself. This book falls into two divisions. First six chapters, the reconstruction of the walls. And chapters 7 through 13, the reinstruction of the people. And with those two, you have the whole book. The reconstruction of the walls and the reinstruction of the people. After the temple, or when the temple is cleansed and rebuilt in any human life, and by that we mean the worship of God in the Spirit has been resumed and reestablished, that's always the first Play, uh, part of return. Then comes the time to rebuild the walls. And that's what Nehemiah is all about. Now what does a wall symbolize? In Berlin, one of the most famous uh, landmarks of the world today is the Berlin Wall. And there that wall is a divider between the city, two parts of the city. But ordinarily, a wall stands as a symbol of strength and of protection. In these ancient cities, the only means of defense that they really had were the walls. And sometimes the walls of these ancient cities were tremendously thick and large. The walls, for instance, of the city of Babylon, as recounted in the uh, story of Daniel, were some uh, 380 feet thick and over a hundred feet high, uh, massive, tremendous walls, and uh, therefore the city of Babylon considered itself very safe, and this was the means of protection and the symbol of strength in these ancient cities. Now, what does it mean then to rebuild the walls of a life? Well, it means to recapture the strength of your life. And this is the teaching of the book of, of uh, Nehemiah. It's a story of how the walls of Jerusalem were built up again. 
And Jerusalem is a symbol always of the city of God, the place of the, the uh, place of God's dwelling, the center of life for the world. And in any individual life, the rebuilding of the walls would be a picture of of reestablishing once again the strength of a life. We've all met people who have who have whose defenses have crumbled away and they've become human derelicts drifting up and down sometimes the streets of our large cities in the skid rows and other places absolutely hopeless almost helpless people whose walls have all tumbled down but God in grace frequently reaches down and gets one of those people and brings them out and rebuilds the walls and this is the picture of the way the walls of any life or any local church or any community or any nation can be rebuilt into strength and power and purpose again. Now, in this book, we trace the steps of this. The first step is given in chapter 1. It begins with concern about the ruin. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Nehemiah says, When I heard the report that came from Jerusalem, uh, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And you'll never build the walls of your life again until you first get greatly concerned about the ruin that's there. And I wonder if any of us have really begun in this area. Have you ever taken a good look at the ruin in your own life? Have you ever stopped long enough to assess what you could be under God and compare it with what you are? Have you looked at the, at the possibilities that have been in your life and, uh, and, and have seen what God once perhaps did and now seen how far removed you've, you've come from those? And like Nehemiah, the report has come to you in some form or another of the desolation and the ruin of the city. And when Nehemiah heard this report from Jerusalem, he wept and prayed for days and showed an intense concern over this. And you'll never rebuild the walls until you first weep over the ruins. And then this is followed with confession. And you have in chapter 1 also a wonderful prayer of Nehemiah as he prayed a prayer of confession of the fact that the nation had forsaken God and he acknowledges the, the justice of God's dealing with him and confesses. And that's followed immediately by commitment. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. O Lord, he says, let thy ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who delight to fear thy name and give success to thy servant today. To do what? You see, this man has a plan forming in his mind already as he's been in prayer about how to go about rebuilding the walls. And he has something definite he wants to ask. Grant, he says, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What man? Well, you have it in verse, uh, in the next verse. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So here's a man who, out of his concern and after the confession of his heart, 
commits himself to a program and a project. And he asks that God begin to move in the heart of the king. Now, this is always the way any return to the grace of God must begin. We we get concerned. There is always a confession. And there's a commitment to begin to move and to ask God to move on our behalf. Because invariably in an enterprise like that, there are factors that we have no control over. And God must arrange them. We all had a good laugh uh, this last weekend at the men's conference when a number of the men were sharing together certain experiences in their life. And one man told how in the early days of his Christian experience, someone had encouraged him to pray about the things that happened in the, on his job, the things that con- his relationship with his boss and his relationship with his fellow employees. And he said, uh, you know, he said, I, uh, I didn't think that was the right thing to do at first. But he try- I tried it, he said, and I saw that it worked. And he said, you know, I thought it was quite an unfair advantage to take of those poor heathen that I worked with. <laughs> but he said it worked so well, I could see that it was something that God had provided for us. And this is what Nehemiah is well aware of, that God must move uh, in the areas in which he could not. And so he prays about coming to the king. And then he appears before the king, and uh, uh, the king notes the sadness of his face and asks him what he wants done. And uh, since this is the very king whose, husband, whose wife is Queen Esther, she's already given him a great concern for the Jews and a knowledge of the Jews. And so he's responsive to the plea of Nehemiah, to return to the city. And this is followed then with the next step in the program of reconstruction, courage. For in verse 9 we read, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But, but, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite Do you recognize these names? These are those one of those interpretational constants throughout the Word of God. Whenever you read of Ammonites and Amorites and Amalekites and Hittites and Jebusites and Parasites and all the other ites, you know that you have an immediate picture of the enemy of God, the flesh. The satanic agency within man which always inevitably irresistible uh, irresistibly, I started to say, that's not quite the word, I mean inevitably resists the work and the will of God and the ways of God. And here you have this enmity immediately. When they heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. And immediately there's a need for courage. Because whenever a man says, like Nehemiah, I will arise and build. Satan always says, then I will arise and oppose. And begins to make things difficult when we start turning back to God. And then the next step is uh, manifest in this uh, experience of Nehemiah as he comes back to Jerusalem and rides about the city at night. It's the exercise of caution. 
when Nehemiah got to the city, he didn't just start putting bricks on top of one another. He didn't immediately rush out and tell all, get all the people excited and start building the walls. If he had, he would have fallen into the trap of his enemies very soon. But the first thing we read he did was he arose at night when no one else knew, and he rode around the walls of the city and surveyed the ruins and took note of exactly what needed to be done. He made an honest survey of the facts that he was facing in order that he might see exactly what the situation was. And then he began to lay his plans. Now we get the process. That's the principles of reconstruction. Uh, this display of, of concern, confession, commitment, courage, and caution. But now you get the process of reconstruction in chapter 3. For here we learn how he went about this task. And if the walls of your life are broken down, and your defenses have uh, crumbled away, so that the enemy is getting at you on every hand, and you find yourself an easy prey to temptation, I suggest you take careful heed of what the process of reconstruction is, is set forth in this book of Nehemiah. In the third chapter, we learn that, first of all, the people were willing. They had a mind to work. That was one thing. And second, they were involved. They immediately started doing something. And Nehemiah, in the wisdom that God gave him, set them to work building the wall opposite their own houses, right by their own house, so that they were personally involved in this work. And then the rest of the chapter is describes how the wall, how they went about building. And it all centers around the ten gates of the city of Jerusalem. Now, these gates are highly significant. Uh... The wall evidently was built back up as the people would be assigned a certain portion of it uh, divided up by the gates that uh, uh, that gave access to the city. And as you run through this chapter, you'll find the names of these gates given. And it's been often pointed out that the names are very significant. Most of these Hebrew names are. And I want to just quickly trace this for your own uh, edification and uh, we'll draw the lesson from it very quickly as we go through this. There was, first of all, the sheep gate. The sheep gate. This was the gate out uh, through which the sacrifices were taken as they were led, uh, as the sheep were brought into the city to be sacrificed at the altar. And the sheep gate, of course, speaks of, to us of the Lamb of God. Who was shed on, uh, whose blood was shed on the cross for us. And therefore, it's a principle. It reveals the principle of the cross. Now, that's always the place to start for strength in a life. You have to recognize the principle of the cross. The fact that God will be moving in your life to utterly cancel out your own ego, your own plans, your own self-interest. And the cross is that instrument in God's program which puts the ego to death. And that's where we begin, building for strength. And then it moves to the uh, fish gate. Now, what does the fish gate suggest to you? 
Remember the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, Follow me and I will make you fishers, fishers of men. And this is suggestive immediately of the witness of a Christian. Has that gate been broken down in your life? Has the wall around the fish gate crumbled? If so, this is one of the defenses of your life that has been destroyed. And the wall needs to be rebuilt again. For the Lord Jesus said that every Christian is to be a witness for him. And if this wall is broken down, you'll find that through this vacancy in in your defenses, the enemy will come in again and again. If you never can say a word for Christ, if there's never any witness in your life, this is a broken wall. And the fish gate needs to be built up again. And then the next gate is the old gate. You'll find it in verse 6, called the old gate. What does this suggest? Well, I'm going to suggest that it means truth. It, we, and in many lives, this gate is broken down. We're no longer resting upon the truth. For it's the truth, for truth is always old. It's the old things upon which everything new must rest. Somebody as well said, whatever is true is not new, and whatever is new is not true. And that's true, because it isn't new. These are the days when the old truths are being forsaken, when men are rapidly throwing out things that the church has stood on for centuries, and they're saying, we don't need these things anymore. But when we, take the, when we allow these old truths to go, we find the wall is broken down. And the enemies outside gain access to our soul. And this gate needs to be built up again. This wall needs to be repaired. So that we rest upon the old principles of the word of God. These truths that will never change. Because they were, they were true when they were uttered. They were true a hundred thousand years before they were, they were uttered. And they'll be true a hundred thousand years from now. They never change. I often think of that story of the of the uh, fellow who went up, uh, who greeted an old uh, musician one day, came up and said, knocked on his door and said, when he came to the door, the musician came to the door, he said to him, what's the good word for today? And the old man didn't say a word. He turned around and went back and across uh, the room where a tuning fork was hanging. And he took a hammer and struck the tuning fork, so the note resounded out through the room. And then he said, that, my friend, is A. He said, it was A yesterday, it was A 5,000 years ago, and it'll be A 5,000 years from now. Now, he said, the tenor across the hall sings off key. The soprano upstairs flats on her high note. And the piano in the next room is out of tune. But he struck the tuning fork again. He said, that's A. And that, my friend, is the good word for today. (laughs) And that's what truth is. Truth is always the same. It never changes. It's the old things. And we need to rebuild the old gates these days. And then the next gate is the valley gate. 
And what is the valley gate? You can see immediately what that's suggestive of. It's the place of humility, isn't it? It's the place of lowliness of mind and of heart. God has said in every page of the scripture that he is against the pride of men. And he looks to the lowly, to the humble, to the contrite, to those who have learned that they are not indispensable, who have learned to have a low opinion of themselves, but a high opinion of their God. And it's to this that he looks. And this gate oftentimes need, needs to be repaired, the valley gate. And then the next gate is the dung gate, the place through which all the refuse of the city was carried. All the rubbish, all the filth that accumulated was taken out through the dung gate. And my friend, if you don't have a dung gate in your life, you're in bad shape because all the refuse is accumulating in your own heart and life and it will make you smell to high heaven in the sight of God and man. And if this gate, therefore, is broken down so that none of the refuse, none of the rubbish can be cleansed away, this needs to be repaired. And then the fountain gate was next. And that reminds us instantly of the words of the Lord Jesus to the woman at the well when he said, if you'd ask of me, I'd have given you a, a, a living water which would be in you a fountain, a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. And it speaks of the Holy Spirit, which is the, the river of life to us, the flowing of the Spirit of God in our lives, obedience to his will and to his work. And this is followed by the water gate, and water in the scripture is always a symbol of the word of God. And the interesting thing about this uh, water gate, found in verse 26, is that it, never, it did not need to be repaired. It was the only part of the wall that was evidently still standing. Uh, it, it just simply mentions the people who lived by it, but it, it doesn't mention this being repaired. For, of course, the word of God never breaks down. It doesn't need to be repaired. It simply needs to be re-inhabited. That's all. And then this is followed by the east gate. And the east gate was the gate toward the sun rising, the gate of hope, the gate of anticipation of what God has yet to come. When all the trials of life and the struggles of earth are ended and the glorious sun rising, of the new day appears. This needs to be rebuilt in many of us who fall under the, under the pessimistic spirit of the age and are crushed into the sense of the hopelessness of our time. And then the horse gate. And the horse is in scripture a symbol of warfare. The need to battle against the forces of darkness. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, the apostle says, but against principalities and powers, and wicked spirits in high places. This is the battle. And the, the ninth gate is the muster gate, or literally the examination gate, the place evidently where judgment was conducted, where we sit and take a look at ourselves, and every now and then stop to measure what we're doing and how we are. And that brings us again in the last part of the chapter 
around to the sheep gate again, the gate of the cross. For the cross must be at the beginning and the ending of every life. Now, in this beautifully typical way, you see, the book of Nehemiah is teaching us what needs to be done to strengthen the walls of our life. Now, the next chapters, and I won't dwell on these at all, 4, 5, and 6, cover the matter of persecution that arose over the building of the walls of the city. And as I've already suggested, when you start to rebuild the strength of your life, you'll find that there is a force immediately aroused both within you and outside of you that resists with every every uh, power that can be brought to play the work of God in your life. And this, the persecution revealed here can be summarized in three words, contempt, conspiracy, and cunning. What the, uh, the enemies tried to mock and cast contempt upon what God was doing. And uh, when they failed at that, they attempted conspiracy. They tried to uh, involve them in a plot that would overthrow this work. And when that failed, they tried to uh, call Nehemiah away from his work by a very cunning scheme. But when you come to chapter 6, verse 15, you read the wonderful sentence, So the wall was finished on the 25th day in 52 days. An amazing record. Now, the latter part of the book, chapter 7 through 13, is the story of reinstruction, And we'll not take a great deal of time with that. We've had something of it already in the book of Ezra. But this is the way to retain strength once it's rebuilt. Then what do you do? How do you retain the strength? And here is the instruction of the people. And in chapter 8, we have the story of the same meeting, the great calling together of the people with Ezra the priest that is that was recorded also in the book of Ezra. And it began, and notice the steps here, with the reading of the law. Chapter 8, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. This is the way you ought to preach. For he was above all the people in the pulpit. And when he opened it, all the people stood. You're lucky. You get to sit. But Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And verse 8, and they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's nothing more nor less than expository preaching. And this was the first means of retaining the strength that the walls represent. And then it's followed by the reminder of their pilgrim character. For they celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles, the booths where Israel dwelt in booths made of tree boughs, in order to remind them they were simply strangers and pilgrims on earth. And then that is followed by the remembrance of the lessons of the past. In chapter 9, you have a tremendous prayer of Ezra as he's recounting what God has done in the life of this people. And it's always good to stop and remember what God has taught you out of the past. That's, an, that's always a safe way to preserve the strength that God gives. And this is followed by a resolution to obey. The people signed a covenant together and agreed that they would do what the law demanded. 
they would actually start out doing it. They covenanted, they resolved that this was the step they would take. And I can tell you, out of my own experience, that you will never be able to retain the strength that God gives you until you're ready to face the lifelong principle that you intend to do what he says, that you are going to obey him whenever you hear and, and know what he wants. And in the 11th chapter, you have the recognition of gifts in their midst. There's the recognition of the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers and various others who ministered in the temple. Just as in the New Testament, we're told to discover the gifts that God, has, the, the Spirit, has given us and to be put them to work. Stir up the gift that is in you, Paul wrote to Timothy. If you want to retain your strength, start using what God has given you. And this is recorded in chapter 11. And then in verse uh, chapter 12, you have the rejoicing in grace, the dedication of the temple, when the people gathered about the building and uh, went about it, marching around it with instruments, singing and shouting and playing and rejoicing and crying out with great joy as God had given them back the place of, of worship and of service in his sight. And there's nothing that will add to your strength in the Lord other than the joy of the Lord in your life and the expression of it. And the, chap the book closes with this picture of the resistance to evil. I want you to see what this man, ne Nehemiah, did. You'll never remain strong for God unless you're ready to take the attitude that he took. He was ready to say no to the forces that would destroy what God was doing in his life. And look what he had to do. In verse uh, 7, he says, When I came back to Jerusalem, having gone back to Babylon in the meantime, I discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah. This was the man first mentioned in the beginning of the book, who was uh, uh, the uh, en enemy of the Jews. How he had prepared for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Allowed this fellow to move right into the temple. And what did Nehemiah do? He said, I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I went in and cleaned out, and threw Tobiah and all the furniture out into the streets. Well, that isn't all. In verses 10 and 11, 12 and 13, he found that the priests had been cheated of their... Uh, their uh, promised supply, and he restored to them the, the, the money that belonged to them, the supply to the priests. And then he discovered through the city they were violating the Sabbath. They were bringing in merchandise and selling in the streets. In verse 19 he says, when it began to be dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. He kept them all out of the city. And uh, then he discovered that some of them were waiting outside the doors all night long, hoping that somebody would come out and they could do a little business. So what did he do? He said, I warned them, and I said to them, Why do you lodge before the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. And then 
he discovered another problem, that uh, the people were still intermarrying with the forbidden races around them. And uh, so this man became violent. He says, I, in verse 25, I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. What a man. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourself. But that is still isn't all. He found that one of the fellows who was his foremost enemy, who had done more than any other to oppose the building of the wall, was Sanballat the Horonite. And in verse 28 he, we read, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliasha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So what did he do with him? I chased him from me. Now, perhaps you say Nehemiah was very severe. But you see, here's a man who has learned that there can be no compromise with evil. He's learned one of the greatest lessons that the Spirit of God can ever teach anyone is the power to say no when it needs to be said. And you remember it was on this very note that the Lord Jesus began his ministry in Jerusalem as he came into the temple and finding it filled with the money changers and those who were defiling the house of prayer, he made a whip of cords and drove them out of the temple. Now there's nothing ungentle, there's nothing gentle about that. Here's a man who's thoroughly angry with the sparks flying from his eyes and yet He's perfectly uh, uh, justified in what he does because he is simply resolutely saying no to anything that will defile the temple of God. And I don't think there's any, any lesson that the record of history brings home to us more strongly than this, that those who have made a, name, a mark for God throughout the history of the church have been those who have learned to say no and had the power to say no when the right time came. You read the story of the Covenanters, of Martin Luther, of John and Charles Wesley, of all those who have moved against evil in the, in the world. And it's always been men and women who have learned to say no and to stand out against anything that defiles the temple of God. Now, these are the ways by which strength is maintained in our life. And as we come to the close of this book, we see that the wall of Jerusalem stands once again. God has reestablished a testimony in this city. Our Father, we thank you for this look again out of thy word to the truth that affects our own lives. And we pray that we too may learn, like Nehemiah, to be a man of discipline, a man of courage, a man of confidence in thee, a man who is willing to say no, who will be absolutely rem re uh, ruthless against the, the forces that would undermine and would sap away our vitality. In Christ's name, amen.